0: Good morning, Elevation. Glad to be with you again this week. Uh, Coming at you from the kitchen this week because I was listening to a webinar this week and a woman was talking about her experience with a new workplace hazard being the kitchen. She talked about how her new office is in the basement of her home and every time she comes upstairs to be with her family she has to walk through the kitchen. And while it's just so tempting and so she finds herself going for snack after snack every time to the point that she decided that in order to come into the main part of her house from this point on she was going to exit the basement through an external door, walk around the house and enter in a way that she would not have to walk through the kitchen. So yes new workplace hazards for those of us who are working from home. But there are some old workplace hazards that are still around as well, even if we don't find ourselves in the office. For myself specifically, one of those hazards is a little something called misunderstanding. There are a lot of reasons to avoid talking about sex this morning, not the least of which is that any time I wander into sensitive territory, I run the risk of being misunderstood. So here's my request. Stick with me. Don't bail out too soon. If your eyes start to roll or your cheeks start getting flushed, just bring yourself back, and try to stay the course. One final reminder that this morning's message is rated PG. So why now? It's been two years since we've talked about sex on a Sunday morning. In 2018, we talked about it a lot. I made a vow that we wouldn't talk about it all in 2019. So here we are in 2020. Two years is long enough. A bit of context then before we dive in. Two years ago, our Elevation community was knee deep in a conversation about the intersection of same-sex relationships and Christian faith. In the end, we decided to cast a vision that would allow room for people to believe and practice their faith indifferently, even while still journeying together as a church. For those of you who weren't with us, you can find information by going to the About tab on our website, and you can look under the heading Unity and Diversity. There are some resources there uh, that you can get caught up with the decisions that we made during that season. Uh, Now, of course, we had no interest in throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There were some things that we decided to get rid of, one being barriers for people in same-sex relationships participating fully in the life of the church. We got rid of that. We also got rid of the notion that everyone in the church has to believe and practice their faith the same way. So there are some things we wanted to get rid of, but there were others that we want to hang on to. We had no interest in throwing out marriage, for example, or sexual ethics. There are a number of important values that guide our community as we form healthy relationships and seek to express our sexuality in God-honoring ways. These values can help us navigate our current and our future relationships. They can help us evaluate past relationships, the good, the bad, and the ugly. They can help us make peace with our bodies in the midst of a culture that compartmentalizes and commodifies sex. And they are values that we can pass on to the next generation with confidence and grace. One author that I read recently says that most believers have little idea of how their sexuality interfaces with the Christian faith. And that right there is good enough reason for us to dive in. And that's the very thing we're going to explore together this morning. But before we go any further, I'd like to read a passage from Scripture this morning. I'm reading it now a few minutes into my message because I reached out and asked other people to read it, uh, but no one was interested. No, that's not true. I didn't ask anyone because I knew that no one would want to read a spicy passage like Song of Songs 7 verses 1 to 8. Take a listen. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of weed encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. Now, the first things that we learn about sex are biological and mechanical. We learn the what and the how about sex. Well, at least most of us do if we pay attention. In the eighth grade, uh, I remember uh, when we did a sex-ed unit in our health class, uh, I ended up getting myself in a little bit of trouble. You see, I was the class clown in grade 8. I would do just about anything to get attention. And so when we all of a sudden start talking about body parts and seeing these diagrams and pictures, I just couldn't help myself. And the net result was that at the end of the, the five-day unit of health, I got kicked out of class four of those five days. I remember by the, the last day, the teacher just looked at me, and I, he didn't even have to say anything. I just nodded and walked out of the door into the hallway. Uh, My grade 8 self just could not handle the awkwardness of this all. But once we're mature enough to handle the ground level material, we can move on to other more important questions like why and who. Answers to the first two questions apply pretty much across the board, but it's in this next level of questioning that the answers begin to vary significantly. Health class will offer answers to the questions of who and why, uh, as will the news media, special interest groups, the healthcare community, artists, psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, along with other ists and just about anyone who has an opinion. And some of the answers provided in these spaces add value to the conversation. Sex must be consensual. That might be something that is told in a health class and that's something that is an important message. Um, Sex creates emotional bonds. Maybe a psychologist or a therapist would would talk about that and that is a very important thing for us to understand about sexuality. Uh, Even in In middle school and high school sex ed classes, where they talk about, you know, practicing safe sex and the importance of this. Again, important, valuable lessons. I may wish that they were talking about abstinence being the safest sex, but the reality is there's still good messages being shared out there. But other answers to these why and who questions tend to muddy the waters when the sexual vision of the culture we live in, or more accurately, the sexual visions of the culture we live in, because there are many different ones, are at odds with the sexual vision that God has been casting since He first first commanded our naked ancestors in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful and multiply. Our sexuality is an important part of who we are. Unfortunately, it's also something that most of us prefer to avoid talking about, especially in church. But it's worth getting a little uncomfortable this morning, because while everyone else is growing more confident sharing their opinions, the church seems to be whispering. The author Philip Yancey, who I've read for a number of years now, uh, made this quote. He said, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive approach to sexuality. Now, when I first read this, I thought, well, I can think of some other significant ways that Christians have failed. Um, An overstatement, sure. But what if we let Yancey's hyperbole press us for a response? Do followers of Jesus have something persuasive to say about human sexuality? I read an article recently by a woman named Alice McKenzie. She was telling a story about the first time she was invited to speak at a small town country church. I was told by someone, she writes, not to wear open-toed shoes in the pulpit because the toe cleavage was too alluring to the men of the congregation. I wondered why if they were hidden behind the pulpit. I also wondered why in general. Uh, I like that. Christianity has a reputation for being... Prudish when it comes to sex, and that is a reputation that has been well earned over the centuries. So, with 2,000 years of churches being disproportionately concerned about what men and women do with their bodies, maybe it's just time to stop talking about it. But the key phrase there is disproportionately concerned. I read a headline last week, it said $500,000 bet on rock, paper, scissors ruled invalid by Quebec court. Now you can just imagine two guys getting excited about some kind of a bet or the other and they decide to actually wager like half a million dollars on this. And the one guy loses, he ends up taking this massive mortgage out on his house to pay off his debt and then eventually realizes this is ridiculous, this would never hold up. And so finally the Quebec court ruled no this this is not a valid wager. They said that the amount wagered must not be excessive and this was clearly an excessive wager. Is it possible, I thought, that the church has wagered too much on this one aspect of discipleship? Jesus didn't have a whole lot to say about sex, but Paul did in his New Testament writings. And his straightforward message for the earliest followers of Jesus was to flee sexual immorality and pursue self-control. Now, sexual immorality is an English translation of the Greek word pornea, which refers to sex outside of marriage. A Christian vision for sexuality includes a call to embrace the virtue of chastity, reserving the most intimate of sexual acts for the most intimate of relationships. As C.S. Lewis once quipped, chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. And it really is. Uh, But there was a time when it wasn't. There's a time when chastity was actually a pretty popular virtue in evangelical circles. About 20 years ago, it was something called purity culture. Now, some of you who would have come of age in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, would be familiar with things like purity rings, where people would wear a ring, symbolizing to the people around them that they're not uh, going to be having sexual intimacy with people until their spouse, and until they're married. Um, then you may think about something like Joshua Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Uh, the teaching went beyond even saving sex for marriage, to now we're actually not going to be part of this dating culture at all. There were passages like proverbs 6 27 to 28 that would uh that we read can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched and passages like these were taken to a point of believing that anything that a young woman did could be a stumbling block, could cause uh, her male counterpart to fall. And so there was this insistence that women had to watch everything about what they did and how they acted and how they dressed. There was certainly an unbalanced focus on a female's role in temptation. Now, I've listened to numerous interviews, had read a number of posts where women who grew up in this era are struggling all these years later with negative self-image, with an inability to have a healthy sex life, even in their marriage, and in many cases, with a broken relationship with God. The damage of some of this teaching continues to echo on in people's lives. You see, rather than emphasizing the gift of sex within marriage, purity culture typically led with the shame of having sex outside of it. I wanna read a section from Leonard Sweet's new book, Rings of Fire. He says, maybe the church could take its cue from fairy tales like Sleeping Beauty. When it was foretold that Beauty would die if she pricked her finger on a spinning wheel before her 16th birthday, Her parents chose to rid the kingdom of all spinning wheels instead of teaching her how to use a spinning wheel properly. They sent her away and sheltered her from the spinning wheel world. Sure enough, right before her 16th birthday, she found a spinning wheel and was curious. What was it? How did it work? What did it do and make? And what do you know? She pricked her finger, drew blood, and died. We can do better than this. We can do better than trying to whisk people away from the big bad world of sexuality. We can cast a vision that isn't rooted in fear and shame. Sex is not a dirty thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a shameful thing. It cannot ruin you. It cannot make you less than. It cannot make you impure. And it certainly cannot separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's this great story about an encounter that Jesus had with a woman, a Samaritan woman, at a well in John chapter 4. They're having some banter back and forth. And at one point she says something about not having a husband. And Jesus responds to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. Jesus calls her on this kind of behavior that she was living. Uh, She quickly tries to change the subject. And the very next thing he says to her is this. A time is coming. When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Many of the Samaritans, then we read from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This is what she said He told me everything I ever did. So think about what happened here. Jesus named the woman's sin and included her among God's people. Deborah Hirsch writes The gospel doesn't involve God simply obliterating our history, God is a redeemer not an eraser. When I read that quote, it reminded me of the passage from Isaiah 61, where the prophet is describing how God had empowered him by his spirit to bestow a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. As a community of faith, not a community of fear, We want to inspire one another toward the goal of chastity in a positive way without falling prey to judgment and self-righteousness. Like Jesus, we will avoid using guilt and shame as weapons against those who falter in their pursuit of this vision we're describing or who were never pursuing it to begin with. There's a beautiful quote from Ontario author Anne Voskamp. She writes, The miracle of intimate union, of communion, comes through brokenness through broken places and broken people and the brokenness of Christ. Lisa Wade is a professor and sociologist and the author of a recently released book, American Hookup. She spent five years studying sexual culture on university and college campuses, and one of the many observations she makes goes as follows. She says the most stigmatizing label on college campuses today is no longer one that references sexual behavior like slut, or even the more hookup culture consistent prude, it's desperate, as in desperate for a meaningful relationship. The social pressure that young adults are feeling from their peers is to avoid making a connection between their sexual activity and their longing for relationship. It's an approach that, in the words of another author, simply baptizes casual sex in the name of self-expression and divorces sex from covenant faithfulness and self-sacrificial love. But not only does this cultural vision divorce sex from covenant faithfulness, it's trying to divorce it from any kind of meaningful relationship. Sex is just one thing. Relationships are something different. Now, without a doubt, a Christian vision for healthy expression of sexuality finds itself in direct conflict with the dominant vision among young people today. We believe there's a sanctity, a a holiness to the human body. And therefore, what we do with our bodies matters and matters deeply. We had this song earlier in our service today, Everything is Sacred. We believe this. And this is particularly true with respect to our sexuality, where our actions affect both our relationships with one another and with God i like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Ah, I wish Paul had spent a little more time unpacking some of these verses' hidden gems. Your bodies are members of Christ himself. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. The two will become one flesh. Honor God with your bodies. Tell us more, Paul. What does it mean to honor God with our bodies? A healthy sexuality must go further than mere consent. That's our culture's baseline. Whatever our relationship status, we are called to honor our own sanctity, and that of our fellow image-bearers by resisting the urge to cheapen or objectify one another. We live in a world where distorted images of sexuality are plastered all over the place and where we're invited to participate in the distortion and the consumption. But sex is not a sex spectator sport, and it's not a commodity to be bought or sold. Sex is not something to be taken when we want it. It's something to be shared. It's this interesting little verse in... In this section from 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And, and I don't really have time to go into all of what that could mean. But, but there's one thing that kind of stuck out to me this week. If we have any hope of making peace with our bodies in the midst of a culture that compartmentalizes and commodifies sex, we've got to find ways to resist the allure of momentary pleasure and instant gratification. And we've got to chase after something worth more. I heard someone ask, kind of humorous, but poignant question uh, recently, why is the Hindu religion known for 1,500 sex positions and the Christian religion for one? Um, Ah, it's so disappointing. Now, as far as what the Christian religion has to say about sexuality, there's no better argument for the sacred nature of our sexuality than Song of Songs. Uh, the book of the Bible that I read this morning's passage from. It's an interesting book. You ask yourself, why is it here? God is never mentioned, not even once in this book, not even by way of illusion all the way through. So why is this book, which is essentially a story, an erotic story of romance and sexuality between a man and a woman, why is this included in our Bible? What is the point here? Well, I think at least part of the point is that in the right context, sex can be something beautiful, exciting, fulfilling, and profound. When it comes to the Song of Songs, the more sensual passages, they go hand in hand with those that describe a depth of love and relational intimacy that are both the source and the result of the couple's intense sexual energy. Listen to a couple of other passages, the first from chapter two and the next from chapter seven. Arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. As we read this back and forth dialogue through these eight chapters, what we find is a respectful, reciprocal, mutual pursuit and invitation between the lover and beloved. Leonard Sweet refers to what he calls the giftedness of sex. Its genius as a binding force. Its inspiration to the human imagination in the creation of great music, poetry, and art. Its role as a motivator and insurer of family stability. Last week we talked about how the Genesis narrative acknowledges our need for relationship. It also points out the significance of our sexuality by referring to the unique bond it creates between partners in the covenant of marriage. From Genesis 2, when a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, they become one flesh. In a marriage relationship, sexual intimacy can provide a source of physical pleasure, can open a husband and wife to the possibility of procreation, and can become a physical demonstration of deepening respect and love and a sign of lifelong commitment. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translated 1 Corinthians 7 verse 3 in the message. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Last week, my eyes were bugging me. I don't know, maybe it's spending too much time staring at screens and doing video chats with people. I don't know, but my eyes were kind of dry and watery. So I went and grabbed some eye drops. Uh, it was kind of frustrating, actually. Uh, when I, I got the little bottle, I wanted to see how many drops I was supposed to put in each eye. And the writing on the box was so incredibly small, I couldn't even read it. And I'm thinking, wait a second, like the only people using this are people whose eyes are bothering them or aren't healthy. Why did you make the writing so small? Anyways, I put it in, it, put the drops in my eyes and things cleared up in time. It's easy for our vision of the life God has created us to live to get blurry from time to time. And sometimes it may feel like it's hard to understand what God wants from us. At the end of the day, I think the most important thing to know is not what he wants from us, but that he wants us. Now, if we go back to that Song of Songs, Some have read this book of the Bible and drawn parallels to God's love for his people. Some would say that it's actually not about a man and a woman at all. It's just about God and his people. Uh, I think that's a bit of a stretch. But I think that when we read these words between the man and the woman, when we read them talk about their love for one another, I want to share one final passage here this morning because the words that we use to describe our love for one another, they're just a shadow just a a fraction of the kind of love that God has for each one of us. From Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Imagine God speaking these words to you. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. The Christian story invites each of us to bring the fullness of our faith into play as we form healthy relationships and seek to express our sexuality in God-honoring ways. Let us pray. God, I'm grateful that we can crack open our Bibles and find a book that is filled with this steamy love language between a man and a woman who are discovering the joys of love and of sexuality. God, because our bodies are not bad. You've created us the way that we are. You've created us for these longings. You've created us with these longings. And God, I'm grateful that we can turn to you, not being ashamed of this, but knowing that you are our creator. And God, I want to invite you into our lives, into our relationships. I pray that you would help clear our eyes of all of the different visions that our culture puts out in front of us for what sex is all about. And I pray that you would help to replace that with a healthy vision for how we can understand ourselves as sexual beings and how we can respect and honor the people around us as the same. God, I pray that you would help us to engage in good conversation around this theme, that we wouldn't feel like we need to whisper, but that we can boldly walk forward with a confident vision of that we are the people you've created us to be. Go with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been good spending time with you once again here online. And I want to remind everybody that we have an opportunity as we do each week to join together in our neighbors groups. If you're visiting us online and you haven't been a part of a neighbor's group in the past, there'll be a link in the comments section. You can click on that. I'll be the host of that group and I'll invite you to come on in and have some spicy conversation with us today. God bless you and peace to you this week.